I have started the recorder in case we have some deacons that think I need to be reminded. I started it. Um, uh, My book recommendation for today is one that I'm still working my way through, but I'm far enough into it that I feel confident in recommending it. Here's why I'm not going to wait. It is is the holiday season, a stressful time for people. For some people, a very anxious time. I didn't want to wait till January or February probably when I finished this book to, to alert you to it, to put it into your hands. So the book is called Struck Down But Not Destroyed. It's by Pierce Hibbs, I'm sorry, Pierce Taylor Hibbs. If you just look up Pierce Hibbs, H-I-B-B-S on Amazon or some other bookseller, I don't care where you buy it, um, then you can get this book. It is, it's a wonderful book about anxiety. So the subtitle is Living Faithfully with Anxiety. Um, I go through seasons of anxiety. Uh, ever, since I'm, when, ever since I moved, I've had this like low-level, latent, general anxiety. And it feels like over the last couple of months, that has really abated for me, which is unusual. It's unusual for Adam to not feel anxious. Um, and I don't know if it is a coincidence or not, but I started reading this a couple of months ago. So here's, I will just say a few things about the book and why I like it. First of all, Pierce Hibbs writes from his own background of anxiety. This is a guy who had uh, a huge anxiety attack where he was basically immobilized, unable to go out in public, wanted to know why just the thought of stepping foot outside of his door uh, gave him just panic attacks. And he basically had to work through this for himself. But as a Christian, he had to realize that there are immense spiritual dimensions to dealing with anxiety. And if you just talk to somebody in terms of willpower about anxiety, well, just don't be anxious. Just don't be worried anymore. Don't be anxious. Don't, don't think fearful thoughts. You know, you do that for somebody. And unless and you need to actually give them the medicine and show them how to apply it. And this is one of the things that I have really appreciated about this book is that he actually goes through, biblically speaking, how to address the lies we tell ourselves, the sort of things that we can do to give rise to anxiety in our own hearts. He uh, autobiographically at times will talk about himself and how he worked through something difficult, but he always goes back to scripture. So one of the things you see is this is just a biblically saturated book. So for that reason alone... And the fact that he's writing from an autobiographical perspective. This is, I think, the best book I've ever read on anxiety. Before this, I would have recommended a book called Running Scared by Ed Welch. Ed Welch, Ed Welch recommends it. His, his, he endorses this book here. It's longer than Running Scared. Uh, I think this is the kind of book that you start reading it right away. You see help from it. You already see sanctification taking place in your life just from reading it. Ultimately, this is a very spiritual approach to dealing with your anxiety, and it is not a willpower approach. And so if you've seen that before, I was talking to somebody, not, not here anymore, uh, but they were telling me that they read a book on anxiety. It was, it was a John MacArthur book on anxiety, and they said, I didn't find a lot of help from that because it felt like he was just telling me, don't be anxious. God says, don't be anxious, so don't be anxious. Now, maybe that's not a very good representation, but it was what they felt like they were getting from the book. Um, this isn't really that kind of book. Do you know the old uh, Bob Newhart skit, Don't Do That, the Don't Do That skit? Just stop it. Yeah, the lady's like, whenever I, I don't, I don't remember, what does she say, I, have, I get, have this fear of being buried alive and it gives me panic attacks. And he says, well, stop it. 
Just stop it. And every time she says she's going through something, he says, just stop it. And that's how he deals with it. Uh, this isn't that kind of book. So I'm just sending it around, let you look at it, check out that table of contents, see if this is something that might be of help to you. Yeah, Larry. Um, something flashed, changed on the back. Uh, it looks like it's still on. Uh, the video looks like it's still on. So I guess we're... I didn't quite see what it was, but I did see that it changed, so I thought I would... Well, thank you for tattling on the Zoom. I, I hope everybody at home can still see it. It looks like people are still on it. So, um, Whenever I come across these resources like that, I'll just try to mention them to you again. I haven't finished the book. Maybe at the end of the last chapter he goes, and Jesus isn't God or something like that. But probably not. I, I, think, I, could, I think I can see that this is a book on a really good trajectory. So I, I highly recommend it. Uh, let me grab my Bible up here. Uh, we're in the book of Jeremiah today. We are working through uh, uh, the Old Testament in our Sunday school series. We did Isaiah last two weeks. Uh, this week we come to the book of Jeremiah. I want to read a few verses just before we start. Just uh, I want to read the very beginning, the first ten verses of Jeremiah to you. Um, <clears throat> the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin. To whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It also came in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, and until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Now the word of the Lord came to me, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak for I'm only a youth. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. So these are the words of the calling of Jeremiah, but they also include the setting for the book. So there's just a lot contained in these first 10 verses. Jeremiah is the second of the major prophets. He's the second of the major prophets. Uh, This is a book with a structure that is really difficult to pin down. Uh, It doesn't seem to be laid out chronologically. Um, You have to sort of piece the narrative of Jeremiah together a little bit at a time. Uh, There is some order to the book. Um, After all, it does begin with the call of Jeremiah. So you start reading the book in chapter 1 and you think, well, I'm really setting myself up for a chronological journey through the life of Jeremiah. And then you get completely thrown off track because it's not like that at all. It does begin that way, but then it moves very quickly in other directions. So the book appears to be a series of sermons by Jeremiah that do not appear to follow any sort of discernible order. I hate to tell you that. I really would like to think that there's some great scholar out there who would say otherwise and he could come up with this great structure that would really be helpful. Just not the case. Jeremiah... Is, has got an interesting order to it. <clears throat> Let's talk about the historical background of Jeremiah. Uh, he ministers in the southern kingdom for over 40 years. Northern kingdom doesn't exist. 
So that's why he's ministering in the southern kingdom. He's ministering in the only kingdom. There is no northern kingdom. So that's all there is. It's just Judah. And he ministers for about 40 years. He ministers for 40 years. He's born after the fall of the northern kingdom. He lives through the fall of the southern kingdom. Probably born around 639 BC is probably his birthday. Uh, that would make him 42 years old when Judah fell in 597. Remember the fall is in 597. That's when they all get carried away to Babylon. We don't know very much about his early life. We know that he comes from a priestly lineage. We know he's a son of Hilkiah. We know that he lived in Anathoth. Anathoth is about two to three miles from Jerusalem. Um, and we find all those things out right here at the very beginning. When does he get called to minister? He gets called in the 13th year of, of uh, Josiah's reign. That's around 627. So in 627, he's called to be a prophet. Somebody do the math for me. How old is he when he gets called? Yeah, if the math is right, he's 12 years old when he gets called to be a prophet. Because what does he say in verse 6? Ah, oh, Lord, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a, I'm only a youth, right? You can imagine this 12-year-old kid getting called to be a prophet and being pretty terrified at the notion of saying, some of the things Jeremiah has to say are not easy. Let's just put it that way. And so you've got to go and tell the higher ups in the land how stupid they are and how terrible they are and how they need to turn their turn their the corner. Um, very very scary thing for a kid to have to do. Um, what else do we know about Jeremiah? We know that his own family opposed him in uh, chapter eleven. The people of Anathoth are trying to kill him because they want him to stop prophesying. So this is a guy who's even his hometown. You know, this is his family. Even his own hometown, are, they're trying to wipe him off the map. Uh, <clears throat> so what is he called to? He's called to a life of celibacy. This is not a guy with a family. This is not a guy with a wife or children. Instead, he's called to a life of celibacy. That happens in chapter 16, verses 1 to 4. Very different from Isaiah, right? Isaiah's a family man. Isaiah's got children. His children come up in the book. Um, they end up being a part of the narrative. Not so with Jeremiah. Why does God do this? Well, if you look at chapter 16, verses 1 to 4, you actually hear the reason why. The word of the Lord came to me, you shall not take a wife, nor shall you have sons or daughters in this place. He's calling him to celibacy. For thus says the Lord concerning the sons and daughters who are born in this place and concerning the mothers who bore them and the fathers who fathered them in the land. They shall die of deadly diseases. They shall not be lamented nor shall they be buried. They shall be as dung on the surface of the ground. They shall perish by the sword and by famine, and their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth. What's the reason why he's, he's, called, to, uh, why he's called to celibacy? Because God has decided to punish the land. And so his celibacy, his fruit unfruitfulness as a man is sort of an illustration of the fruit unfruitfulness of the land. Um, this is a guy who's persecuted with stock. He's persecuted. He gets whipped with stocks. He gets thrown into a muddy cistern in chapter 38. Um, this book shows us the life of a prophet of the Old Testament like Jeremiah, right? This is a book that shows us the turmoil of the personal life of somebody like Jeremiah and the state of his own heart as he ministers. He has a stinky job. 
He has a, you want to talk about most unthankful job that you could possibly have. I'm going to thank, sorry, thankless jobs that you could have doing the things that Jeremiah is called to do during his basically 50 years of life, roughly. He overlaps with the ministry of Zephaniah. So if you read the book of Zephaniah, Zephaniah takes place during the same time. They're complementary. They probably knew each other. Um, we're going to get to Zephaniah in a few weeks. I'm not sure. It might be January by the time we get to Zephaniah. But we're, we're working our way right through it. Um, uh, let's talk about the historical period. The historical period this book is, is written in takes place before the exile to Babylon. So before Nebuchadnezzar comes, before Nebuchadnezzar hauls off the higher-ups of the city, before he takes the people away into exile, before he kidnaps people and takes them to Babylon, this book is sort of in that before time where the, the heat is turning up, but the pot isn't boiling yet. Uh, where everything is getting bad and getting bad and getting worse, and they can see it getting worse. And Jeremiah's job is to address those things. Hey, let's turn the heat down. And everybody's basically going, no, no, turn up the heat. We're not going to boil. And all the while, you know, he's got, he's got work to do. So Ashurbanipal dies in 631, and the Assyrian Empire deteriorates. The Assyrians, remember, they're the people who crushed the northern kingdom. They're Nineveh, Nineveh basically. Nineveh collapses because Ashurbanipal dies. When he dies... There's nobody to run the kingdom. There's nobody, there's no obvious person to come and come in as his successor. So in 609, Judah's enemies, Babylon, what do they do? They place their own king on the throne of Israel. So they come in. There's an Israelite of his own choosing. So Nebuchadnezzar comes in and this guy named Eliakim becomes the king. But the king of uh, Babylon renames him. It's sort of a way of... uh, uh, Rebranding. It's a sort of a way of asserting authority over somebody, you know. When I buy a dog, I give it my, I choose the name. Yeah, you choose the name. I've had one before. Yeah, they'll say, his name's Spot, and you're like, no, no, his name is Frank the dog, you know. And that's because you're his owner, you know. And that's exactly, that's exactly what happens here. Nebuchadnezzar goes, well, I know your name is Eliakim, but no, your name is Jehoiakim. And, and he's like, my name, my name is Eliakim. And he's like, no, no, you're Jehoiakim now. Everybody's going to call you Jehoiakim. It's a, it's a real power move. Um, I remember uh, Donald Trump would just misname people, and he would keep it up. And I really think it was a total power move. It's like, I'm going to just, I'm going to call you my own name. I'm going to give you the name that I want to give you, you know. Um, so a lot of the book of Jeremiah takes place during Jehoiakim's rule. So it's in this in-between time where he's got to communicate with this king who's basically owned by Babylon, right? He's just put in place by Babylon, and Babylon totally expects Jehoiakim to basically do whatever he wants. Uh, yeah, Joseph. Well, actually, his name isn't really Jehoiakim. I think it's, didn't he name him like Zedekiah or something? I, I think that's what he said. He said they are Well, if someone wants to find out, I have been found to have errors in my lectures before. So this could be another one of those. But um, I think he's Jehoiakim. Yeah, that was a challenge. Find the verse. There is a Zedekiah, and there is a king who gets put in, put in afterwards. So I think I think we maybe are just getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. Maybe. Um, so a lot of this book takes place during this guy's rule. Jeremiah's life 
His circumstances deteriorate. His relationship with Jehoiakim is not good at all. Um, you start to find these moments where Jehoiakim just like is so nervy in the way that he's, he rejects the word of the prophet. It's kind of amazing. Um, at one point, the king gets Jeremiah's scroll. And do you guys remember what he does with it? Yeah. Just tears it to pieces. Uh, he just tears it in pieces. Um, uh, at one point, uh, yeah, um, Judah falls during the book. And you actually get an insider's perspective on the fall of Babylon there are not a lot of books that actually give us this insider's view on what it's like during, before, during, and after the fall. So in that, in that sense, Jeremiah is an interesting book. Again, it's, a sh- it's not a shame because it's by God's plan, but part of me wishes Jeremiah was laid out chronologically because it would be good to be able to hear those sermons one after the other as they're being preached. But instead, there's, they're all kind of mixed together. Um, so remember the timeline of the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, we talked about it last month when I was sort of giving the Old Testament overview. But 605 is when Nebuchadnezzar first comes against the city. Um, it is the first exile. Um, Nebuchadnezzar exiles this first group. Here, what happens? What, what occasions that? Jehoiakim refuses to pay tribute. And so Babylon lays siege to Jerusalem. He's like, hey, look, I put you in place, Jehoiakim. And Jehoiakim says, no, we've had enough. I'm not going to give you everything that you asked for, Nebuchadnezzar. And so he says, well, I'm going to show you my power then. And he comes against the city. He lays the city flat. Uh, His son becomes king, but he is quickly taken to Babylon as well. I actually think that's who you're thinking of, Joseph. I think you're thinking of Jehoiakim's son. Well, actually, I don't don't think it was his son. I think it was his uncle. I think they they, 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 they don't go flat. They go in father's Think about what a mess. Think about what a mess Jerusalem is by the end. Judah is by the end, where the kingly lines are scattered. They're broken. You've got an an outside nation coming in, naming your king, uh, literally and metaphorically naming your king. Um, There's just a lot of chaos going on around 605. And then you get to the events of 597. What happens? Ezekiel. So Ezekiel's another book that takes place during this time. Ezekiel and the other leaders get exiled. We call this the second deportation. That is in 597. So there are stages again to where uh, Israel or Judah gets emptied out. Um, I consider this to be the official date of the Babylonian exile. Uh, so it happens in stages, but it's not really completed till 597. After 597... The nation of Israel basically ceases to exist as far as it being a political entity with any sort of authority or power on the world scene. Um, uh, Metaniah becomes the new king. He gets put there by Nebuchadnezzar. His name is changed to Zedekiah. So there there you go. Yeah, I think that's... So Jeremiah is preaching to Zedekiah. He's constantly telling Zedekiah... The only way to survive is surrender to the Babylonians. That's his message. He says, you can survive. These people can survive. We can all survive. But you have to, you have to surrender to the Babylonians. Does, does Zedekiah heed his advice? No. no, he's a prophet. They never take the prophet's advice. Um, that's part of his job, right? He's supposed to give the message that the people won't listen to. And so Zedekiah doesn't listen to his advice. He says, look, um, at one point, Jeremiah says this. This is a really remarkable moment. One of the most remarkable moments is Zedekiah uh, is approached by Jeremiah. And Jeremiah says to him, he says, if you surrender yourself to the Babylonians, if you turn yourself over to the Babylonians, 
you will personally get taken away, but every single person in Jerusalem will be spared. So think about that, right? Imagine some external aggressor comes against the United States and they go to the leader of the land in private and they say to him, we won't drop the nukes if you come with us. And then he says, drop the nukes then. Because <laughs> that's basically, that is basically what Zedekiah does. And actually, it's worse than that because Zedekiah, he does this amazing thing. He says, he says do not tell anyone about the prophecy you just said to me. You know, because he knows what would happen, right? Imagine how angry the city would be if someone found out that Zedekiah had the key to their release and he decided never to do it. He could have sacrificed himself. He could have given himself up and all the people could have gone free. He's like this, he's like this reverse Jesus, right? <laughs> he's the reverse of Jesus. Because what does Jesus do? Uh, this guy acts like the opposite of Jesus. He will not give himself up for the good of the people. He won't do it. Instead, he's a coward who wants to save his own life. What does Jesus do? Jesus is the king who gives his life for his people so they can go free. Just a total contrast. And sometimes you see that in the Old Testament. I think when you get to a moment like Zedekiah refusing to lay down his life for his people, it is this moment that makes you yearn for a king who will lay his life down for his people. It is just this moment that drives you to Jesus. It's a, it's a terrible moment and it's a wonderful moment all at once. So Zedekiah is lovable, at least for his, uh, his cowardice and his willingness to point us to Jesus instead. Where is that in the book of Jeremiah? I want to look it up. Uh, it is Jeremiah 38. 38. Okay, that's yeah, good. Jeremiah 38. So you, get to, so you get to 586. The siege of, of Jerusalem works. The city gets broken. So between 597 and 586 is when the sort of the downfall happens. 586 is when it's just completely done. Um, so the... Uh, at that point, the majority of those who remain in the city are exiled too. That is the point when Jeremiah goes. So by, the, by 586, the last stage, Jeremiah gets dragged off. What happens? First of all, let's think about Zedekiah. What happens to Zedekiah in 586? He gets dragged away to Babylon. His sons are killed right before his eyes. And then... Nebuchadnezzar shows just how powerful he is. The last thing this man ever sees is his son's murdered before his eyes because his eyes are then gouged out. Um, talk about a power move. I mean, that's what he does. That's torturous what he does to Zedekiah. Um, Zedekiah had his opportunity. See, this is the interesting thing. Zedekiah is doomed either way, but he just won't, he won't yield. He would rather go down with the ship. He would rather the ship go down with him than just give himself up. It's just amazing. Um, after his sons are killed, they gouge out his eyes. He gets taken, uh, taken from Syria where Nebuchadnezzar was to Babylon. So he's not actually, this doesn't happen in Babylon, it happens in Syria, in the presence of Nebuchadnezzar. You just imagine what a brutal dude this is where he's like, I need to see it happen. I want to see you kill these men. I want to see you remove his eyes. Just the grossest thing. And he wants to be there for it. And then in 39, he gets taken away to Babylon. Uh, a group of people kidnap Jeremiah. Does anyone know where they take Jeremiah? Kicking and screaming. To Egypt. Um, so what is, what is Jeremiah doing while he's getting dragged away to Egypt? He is kicking and screaming. He is urging them to stay. He's telling everybody to surrender. 
Um, he sounds like such a compromiser to these people, right? He sounds like such a coward to them. They, they think, no, just stand and fight, stand and fight, stand, fight to the very end. And, and Jeremiah says, but we will live and the city will survive if we will just surrender to the judgment of God. But no one will do it. Everybody's just fighting it, kicking and screaming. Um, he says, don't run back to Egypt. This is one of his messages, right? God delivered you from Egypt. Don't go back to Egypt. Going back to Egypt is not just symbolic. It's literally the place God saved you from. And now you're going to go back to Egypt and you want to live there instead. You think you're going to find security in this place God delivered you from. This is like a dog returning to its vomit, right? This is like a Christian going back to their sin. This is like, this is just the opposite of what God designed us for. We shouldn't be going back to Egypt. And he's preaching this the whole time. He's preaching. He's probably driving them crazy. They're probably like, shut that guy up. Um, you know, just throw him on the back of the horse and let's get out of here. Um, on the way, he warns them if they think is, that Egypt is safe, then God will make sure Egypt falls too. They accuse Jeremiah of lying. They say, you're lying to us. God's not really talking to you. Um, the last scriptural record regarding what happens to Jeremiah is Jeremiah preaching faithfully to the Jewish community in Egypt and finding a lack of response just like he found before the fall of Jerusalem. So he's preaching to people who won't hear him. He's preaching to people who just have no interest in hearing the truth. They would rather hear lies. They'd rather hear him say good things. Say good things to us, prophet, or else we'll think that you're lying. Um, so it's a hard, it's a hard life. This guy's, we, as far as we know, nothing good and ends up coming from Jeremiah's life except that he's speaking the word of God and he's doing what he's supposed to. Um, more than likely, he dies in Egypt preaching the gospel. And that's a good lesson for us to be ministering irrespective of the outcome in a sense or how people respond. There is, some, there is something to be said for, um, what's the word? Uh, is it a suicide mission? I don't know what the, the right word is. Um, but just, uh, yeah, so, so people say it's a fool's errand. So people say that uh, this thing that you're called to do is not going to change anything. Uh, look at a prophet like Jeremiah. You know, your job is to say the truth to people far too stubborn to actually hear it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think sometimes we strategize, we plan, we think so much that we go, well, this isn't going to work, so I'm not going to do it. And so the reality is that we need to remember we're supposed to be faithful. Mm -hmm. And God is the one that's going to be faithful as well. So um, that's the plan. Now, here's where Jeremiah sort of ends on this really potentially hopeless note. Um, Jerusalem is emptied out. But God promised that David was always going to have a man on the throne. And this is, there's sort of this, this, this dramatic tension in Jeremiah where you go, what happens? There's no Jerusalem. There's no temple. There's no king sitting on David's throne. How is this supposed to, how is any of this supposed to be good news? And here's the reality. Uh, David's got a descendant who survives. Does anyone know his name? David. It's a great name. His name is Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel survives. He even returns to Jerusalem. You're going to find him listed actually in the genealogy. You go to Matthew's genealogy, you go through the list, and you actually find Zerubbabel. Uh, he is not spoken of in Jeremiah, but I, I mention him because from the perspective of redemptive history, Zerubbabel, it, it, he lives. In spite of Jerusalem being emptied out, in spite of so much seeming hopelessness taking place over the course of Jeremiah's life, the seed survives. 
There is a child that still survives, this child of David. And so from the perspective of redemptive history, Zerubbabel's existence means the covenant means that the covenant promise of God is still alive. So the book ends with as much destruction as you could imagine happening. And probably a lot of people convinced that God's promise has failed and yet has it failed. No. No, it's a book that, uh, that, that takes place during a dark period, but God keeps his promise alive. So there's a, there's a very beauty, uh, beautiful reality going on here. Um, what about themes and theology from Jeremiah? What are some things that we see in this book? You know, one of the things, themes, themes of this book is the struggle of the prophet. That's just the struggle, the pain. Jeremiah, of all of the writers, no, but no other writer, I think, in the Old Testament bears his soul the way Jeremiah does. Um, uh, he knew God. He was a godly, pious man. He feared the Lord. He took the things of the Lord seriously. But he had major distress with God, and he had major distress with the people, right? He's, he's oftentimes distressed that, with God's actions and distressed with God's teachings. God says, I'm going to do this. And, and he responds with deep alarm. You know, he, he's hearing things from God that, that make him feel terrified. Um, at one point, he almost seems to, to blaspheme God. He um, in chapter 15, verse 18, he likens him to a deceptive stream with water that is unreliable, wow. um, which is like a, a rough thing for a prophet to say. Um, I say he gets close to it, but I'm not willing to say that he actually does it. But he, he's speaking from the heart, though, at this point where he just thinks, God, can I even trust you? Mm. Um, that's an openness. That's an honesty that I, I, don't, I don't think Christians should think that kind of thing. But... If we think it, we need to probably say it and address it and repent. Um, so, again, I like, the, I like the honesty of Jeremiah. Um, he's a very transparent spiritual life. Um, another theme of the book of Jeremiah, this is going to sound really obvious, but it's God. Um, God is very important to the book of Jeremiah. This is not a book about the politics of Israel. This is not a book that's meant to relate to us the history of the people of Israel as much as that is sort of the dominant setting for all of these events but that's not actually why this book was written just so that we would know what it was like being on the inside as jerusalem falls um the point of this book is god is sovereign and he is the creator uh you read chapter four uh in fact i'll read a few verses from chapter four verses 23 to 26 listen to this i looked on the earth and behold it was without form and void and the angels and to, the, oh, and to the heavens, and they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking. And all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man, and all the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was, was a desert, and all its cities were laid in ruin before the Lord, before his fierce anger. Right? So one of these themes that comes out is God is the creator. Uh, if God ceases to have mercy over creation, all of the universe would dissolve. It would no longer exist anymore. Uh, the universe without God as a creator is formless and void and empty. Um, also, this theme of election. God makes choices in Jeremiah. He has, he has choices that he makes. Uh, he says at one point, I forgot to write the reference for this. Israel found grace in the wilderness. The Lord appeared to him from afar saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. This is God speaking to a people that he's about to discipline. <laughs> he's, he's about to crush them. And he says, I have loved you. 
I have loved you with an everlasting love. Just think of the gentleness of what he's saying. Just think of the tenderness of the words of God to this people who are about to get disciplined. It reminds me of when you maybe go to discipline your child and before you deliver the spanking, I think spankings are in the Bible. Before you deliver the spanking, you tell them, I love you. I want you to know I'm doing this because you need to experience discipline, right? It's like God does that. It's like even as you're getting ready to go through this really hard season, I want you to know I love you. And I'm reassuring you of it before I do it. Um, and I'm doing it before, not after. This is not an apology, right? He doesn't come in afterwards and go, I was really rough on you, Israel. I'm very sorry. But he wants them to know everything that's about to happen is purposeful. He interprets it before it takes place so they know it's not an accident. Uh, he tells them what's going on beforehand um, just so they know, just so they have a, a right understanding of what they're going through. Um, another theme of this book is the God's covenant people. Um, this book shows us how Israel should have responded in Jeremiah 11. Uh, you go to 11 uh, verses 4 and 5. <clears throat> he says, listen to my voice. Do according to all which I command you. So you shall be my people and I will be your God. So God has these people. He set them aside. He's, they, he've made, he's made them his people. And he said, how are you supposed to respond to the hard words that I have for you. And here's how they're supposed to respond. Listen to my voice. Do according to all that I command you. You can, if you think about it, if you think about it, the people of Israel, um, they should have responded in obedience. They should have responded in gratitude to what God's done for them. Uh, He's God. You would think that his word is trustworthy. What do they keep saying to Jeremiah? You are lying to us. So they don't, They don't deny that what God would say is true and good, but they're hearing God's word and they're denying that he's speaking to them. Um, They basically go to the source and they blame the source and they say, you are not worth listening to. We would listen to God, but we're not listening to you. And the reality is the whole time they know that it's God speaking to them. They're they're telling them, they're they're telling him that he's lying because they want him to be lying. They're, they're, They're deceiving themselves. Um God is is keeping his promise even when he punishes them. And that's just this resonant theme of this book, something that comes through loud and clear. Again, think about this. If God doesn't interpret these events for them, then all, all that's happening is Nebuchadnezzar is a bad guy and he's crushing them. But this is all theological. This is all has something to do with God. Everything that takes place in Jerusalem, everything that takes place here is all because of the Lord. And they need a prophet speaking into the situation so they know for a fact that this is bigger than just what happens to us here. This is about God. This is about God. Um, Another theme of this book is the future. If you go to Jeremiah chapter 31, one of the most, I think, well-known passages in the book of Jeremiah... Chapter 31, verses 31 to 33. He looks to the future. So we know that Israel's gonna, gonna be destroyed. We know it's gonna be flattened. We know that Judah is gonna be taken away. They're gonna get hauled off to Babylon. And yet when God talks about the future, he doesn't talk about an empty, blank space of time. Instead, he looks forward optimistically. God looks forward with grace. What does he say in, in Jeremiah 31? 30, it's Jeremiah 31, 31. He says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, 
when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So he is promising something that he calls the new covenant. He says the old law, old law, where is it written? It's written on these tablets. The new law is going to be written on hearts. The covenant community is going to be a community of faith. Um, Hebrews tells us that the new covenant is now, that we live within the bounds of the new covenant now. So Christianity is ultimately a religion about faith and heart change. It is not a religion about doing and works and ceremonies. Those things that I criticized in the sermon this morning. Um, Judaism is still waiting for the fulfillment of this promise, right? Judaism is still like, when are we going to get the law written on our hearts? When are we going to experience a life of faith instead of a life of works? And they still look forward to that, and they still wonder when's it going to happen. It's uh, like it, when you're talking, it makes me think it's like a huge reset. You're, you're in Egypt. You have a culture. This is our <clears throat> religious belief. And then, bang, a huge reset. Now we've got a new way to do this. This is another reset hmm. where all of Judaism is now made different when they come back from hmm. Babylon. Yeah. Synagogues show up, never, never around before. Yeah. Everything changed, and getting written on the heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Any other comments about the book of Jeremiah? Um, questions about Jeremiah? Yeah, Calvin. Well, what, what is striking uh, when I look at the, the text you just mentioned, Jeremiah 31, it's a new covenant. And I guess the modern day word for covenant may just be that of a contract. And, what we have in a, under an agreement is that number one, God, God makes the covenant. Hmm. He makes the covenant, <clears throat> promises it, and He carries it out. So, in other words, what strikes me is that He's a God of His word. He keeps His word, hmm. and there are parties in any contract. You have to identify identify the parties. This is between God and His people. And who are those people? A people whose God's laws have been a people whose hearts upon which God's laws have been drafted upon it. And so what, what comes out of that is this a promise of obedience hmm. for the people who are subject to that agreement. I, I, I find it very, very edifying. Well, think about um, Jesus. What is, I mean, we've, we've been going through the, the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the things Jesus is doing over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount is he's going, mere obedience is insufficient. You have to obey God from the heart. So that means your motivations are driven by love instead of by fear, right? Um, instead of, instead of like being afraid, he says, you trust, you love, um, you treasure God, you love his law, you want to be like him. Those are the things that motivate you instead. And those things actually can't happen until we have peace with God. Because until we have peace with God, until God actually removes our sin, then every time we obey, what are we really doing? We're scared that we're going to get struck down. We're scared that there's condemnation ahead for us. And then in the gospel, what does Jesus do? He removes the fear from the equation at all. Now you can have perfect love because perfect love casts out all fear. And now I can obey 
because I love him instead of the fact that I'm afraid of being destroyed by him. And so that's something that gets realized in the Sermon on the Mount, I think, that at least Jesus is really embracing that. And, and you can't have it really until the coming of Christ. You really can't have that until the new covenant, until Jesus lays his life down. Yeah, Charlie. Uh, that's a good question. Repeat it. He, oh, he asked if I think that the, the, the promise to writing the law on the hearts is a promise of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I don't see how the law gets written on someone's heart without the Spirit doing it. Um, we all know the law instinctively in our consciences. And perhaps I think Paul even says that we know right from wrong in our hearts. But I don't think that's the same thing that Paul's talking about. I think that's different. The, the, I, every human being has a conscience, but not everyone has the law written on their hearts the way that Jeremiah is talking about. Because he's talking about somebody who's, who's concerned from the heart to actually obey God rather than some external threat. I think that's what he's saying. So just different motivations. And you, without the Holy Spirit, you'll just keep the law out of fear if you keep the law at all. You'll just be afraid. But he was talking about a new covenant. Which is still coming. Yeah. yeah. So that's different. So I think it's different than what's in Romans 1. Yeah. Um, we have the book of Lamentations, but I'm not going to try cramming that in in the next 45 seconds. So, it's, <laughs> um, so I, hope that, I hope that when you read Jeremiah, if you find it a little bit confusing... You'll realize that it's because that's the, that's the design. That's the layout. These are out-of-context sermons, and they're out of order. So I would recommend reading Jeremiah with a study Bible. I would recommend reading Jeremiah uh, with some kind of help, something to help you sort of be organized and sort of know what the context is for each of these sermons, where they begin, where they might end. Um, I don't think that you should steer clear of a book like Jeremiah. There are harder books in the Old Testament to read. We'll talk about Ezekiel, I think, uh, next week. Oh, no, actually, we won't do one next week because we're going to have the uh, church congregational meeting. Um, but the next time we meet, anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about Ezekiel. A much more challenging book, I think, than even Jeremiah. So we're skipping? We're going to do Lamentations, but it won't take the whole time. Okay. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be brief. Um, Lamentations is a short book. Uh, we could spend all our time on it, but I include it usually in the Jeremiah lecture. So. Well, let's pray. And then uh, we'll uh, get everybody in here and we'll have ourselves some lunch. How's that sound? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your prophets who spoke even though it cost them. We thank you for your prophets who ministered in hard times. Times when they were rejected. Times when they were called liars. Times when they were stoned or thrown into cisterns or kidnapped and taken away to other places. They didn't want to go. Lord, those who came before us and spoke your word, we thank you for them. And we thank you for them because you are the one who raised them up. You are the one who put your word in their mouths. You are the one who interpreted difficult world events and didn't leave us to figure these things out for ourselves. And so we thank you, O oh God, that even today we can be benefited and we can be blessed by the ministry of a, of a prophet like Jeremiah. We pray that we would continue to find deep food and fruit from his preaching, from his ministry. Help for us not to shy away from difficult texts. We ask these things in Jesus' name.
Amen.